for your word today. Lord, I pray to grant me enablement uh, through speaking today to be able to rely on you like never before, Lord. I need that uh, voice. And uh, thank you for the study that's gone into this word this week. And I pray, Lord, through your Holy Spirit, you'll speak to every heart present. I ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So in this passage, he, he deals with that because as an elderly man, he's an older man at this point, he's going to address the church as children. See, the whole issue is that we need to understand, too, is that he's going to bring out that obedience is the key to blessing and prosperity. If we want to grow in our walk with Christ, we must always remember that obedience is key. Now, in Matthew 7, 24 and 27, we read these words. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall. Because it had been founded on the rock, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. John 14:21. Whoever has my commands and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Sometimes when it comes to God's word, we're more interested in making compromises with God's truth than really obeying God's commands. In 1 John 2, 1, he says this, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The genuine desire for John, for the church, is that they live a life free of sin. He'd written that so that they would, in a sense, learn to prevail in terms of the challenges of living a godly life in a secular pagan society, not unlike ours today. God still calls on us to be holy, and that a challenge every single day of your life. That's why I posted an article on Facebook this week. Some of you read it, some of you didn't, that's okay. Sometimes you say, I don't want to watch Facebook. There's so much garbage and junk. I get that, but people do read it. And the article I posted was talking about secondhand porn. And the issue there that I'm relying on and talking about in that article that I relayed was the fact that a lot of us will watch stuff on TV that you wouldn't call really pornography, but it's, it's kind of loose stuff. And we talk about it. We'll make excuses for it. But the bottom line is, we allow our minds to be entertained that if Jesus was sitting beside us, we would not be watching it. And I say that to you because it's so easy. And I've been there. You're watching this really good movie. You see this scene. They're like, oh. You look the other way and then wait for it to skip over and then go back to the channel again. I'm thinking, what am I doing? What am I doing? Am I allowing my mind to be educated by the entertainment of this world and it's happening all over but the thing is as Christians we need to be aware of it because God's call to the Christian is to be holy in a world of darkness and that's a challenge 
because what you make allowance for in your life will eventually take you down. When I talk to people whose lives have been destroyed by sin, and you could name whatever sin it is, it never starts with something that just comes out of the blue, bam, and they blow it, and they, they, they've lost their testimony, they've, they've lost this, they've lost that. No, it, it never happens like that. I was meeting with a bunch of guys for prayer on Thursday morning, and we were talking about this. We're talking about the life of David. And in the life of David, he has this, we all know about David's sin with Bathsheba, how he killed Uriah the Hittite, her husband, and set the whole thing up. And many authors say, well, why did he, he just screwed up in that one area of his life. Why did he do that? I mean, he was a man who was a man after God's heart. He did all these right things, which is wonderful. Why? But if you go back in David's life, into his early years, when he was a man after God's own heart, he said, you see this phrase, and David multiplied unto himself many wives. One of my favorite authors, Chuck Swindle, says, and that's where it started. Taking what didn't belong to him, which God said, no, you're one husband, one wife, that's it. And by making allowance in a little area of his life, just a little area, it took him down. Look at his son Solomon, following his footsteps, multiplying to himself, not 10 wives, not 100 wives, over 900. I would not want to be in that house a certain time of the month. I just, no, I am gone. I'm up to the battlefield. We are not there. But he followed in his dad's footsteps because his dad made allowance in a little area of his life. His son made a bigger allowance, and it took him down. John 14, 21 says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself. If you want God to manifest himself to you in a greater way, start being obedient. Start listening to what he's telling you to do. So he says, I'm writing these things to you because we have an advocate, because the fact is, as Christians, we're going to sin. We're going to make things wrong. He wanted their desire to be on, on the Lord Jesus Christ. Many of us live defeated lives due to sin. We make decisions and engage in activities that appeal to the flesh and discover that, listen to me, sin never produces the desired results we think it will. Sin will deaden your spiritual conscience in such a way that you can't be responsive to the things of the Spirit of God in your life. I'm not saying that we can't obtain perfection in the Bible. We need to strive by the grace of God to fight against the flesh and live free of sin. The problems our world faces are the result of sin. You say, why do we need a message on sin? Because you know what? We're getting blind. Frankly, we're getting blind. So that we can, in the sense of proper perception and clarity, so we can say, that's wrong. That's right. That's wrong. That's right. We're, our senses are dulled. And because of that, we've lost our perception. Problems within the church and our, and our individual lives can be traced back to sin. John desired, as a, as a fatherly pastor, that his congregation wouldn't sin. 
And they would live free of sin. That they wouldn't be in the bondage of sin because Christ died to make you free. He knew that their bodies would be prone to sin. He knew there would be a constant battle between the spirit and the flesh. As long as you're alive, you are going to battle every single day against sin. Have you battled it all against sin this week? I hope so. I hope there's been times in your life where you're like, hey, wait a minute, this isn't right. I shouldn't be living this way. I shouldn't be thinking this way. As long as there's a battle going on, you recognize there's life going on. And so he knew that believers were going to commit sin. Simply a fact of life. But we need to do the very best we can for the Christ, seeking to please him, and yet there are times we will come short and miss the mark. And that's what sin means. Sin means to miss the mark of God's holiness. As long as we live in this body of flesh, the struggle of sin will always remain. We will sin and come short while living in the body of flesh. And when we do, we still can have hope. John declares we have an advocate with God the Father. Jesus is our advocate. So he says, what's an advocate? He is a friend who offers comfort and help because he's been tested in like manner as we have. In other words, Jesus can say, I know what you're going through. Doesn't mean I'm happy with what you're going through. I know what you're going through. But another definition for advocate, it pictures a lawyer who pleads our case before the judge. And so when we sin, and God sees that, Jesus Christ steps in and he advocates for us as our lawyer. And understand that picture every single day. Every single day. When you sin, I have an advocate. His name is Jesus Christ. Why? He died for my sin. He paid the price. He paid the penalty for what I should deserve. And he advocates for me every single day of my life. We have a friend in Christ. So, Jesus is each of those to us. When we sit and follow the journey, we have an advocate who stands with us and for us. In 1 John 2, 2, we read this. He is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. You might have a different translation that says the word atonement instead. But I like the word propitiation. It's a big word. And by the way, it's in your questions for life group this afternoon. So get your pens out right. Propitiation refers to a sacrifice that turns away the wrath of God and thereby makes God propitious, favorably inclined, disposed to be gracious and merciful. So when Christ died on the cross, he took all of God's anger upon himself that we ourselves deserved. Mom and Dad, you ever get mad sometimes when your kids do things wrong? No, I, I never get angry. Are you kidding? My dad get, got angry. We ran for our lives. And so, and sometimes too, when I, my kids get bad, you know, uh, you know, they did things. And uh, I remember once I was driving with a bunch of pastors from, they were preaching at Parkview Fellowship Baptist in Halifax. I was driving along the road. I told you the story, but I'll tell, start telling again. And I've got Dr. Doherty and Dr. Hogue with me in the car. And I'm driving towards church. And who do I see skipping school? 
my oldest son, Joshua. <laughs> Little Chevy Cavalier five-speed. I put it in the four-wheel drift. The guys are all like, <laughs> pulled it over, looked at him, said, you get in that car. And the men in the car, don't hurt him, don't hurt him, don't hurt him. They were advocating on his behalf. And yeah, I took him right back to school. You're not. So I didn't lay the hands of Jesus on him, but uh, because I, there were people advocating for mercy on his behalf. And so we're thankful that Christ is our advocate and that he's not only done that, but he's also taken the wrath of God upon himself because you and I cannot stand in the hands of an angry God. And so we are covered by Christ's righteousness. So when we sin and we miss the mark and engage in activity that ought to bring us punishment, that should bring us punishment, we stand righteous before a holy God because Christ, our advocate, has taken God's anger and God's wrath upon himself. Why? Because of God's great love for you and I. We can never comprehend that. And so... Then he also, notice the extent, he says, no, the scope of the sacrifice, the sins of the whole world in that passage. So he says this, that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of what? The whole world. John is not teaching universalism here, by the way, which means everybody gets to heaven. Because somebody says, well, if Christ died for all the sins of the world, that's true. He did die for all the sins of the world. Well, we can talk about limited atonement and full atonement. We're not going to get that argument today. But all I'm going to say is this. Christ died for all the world. How do we know those who were his? Those who place their faith and trust in what he's done. I'll just leave it at that. <coughs> in that passage. But here we also recognize, too, that the universal, I'm going to quote Dr. Criswell here. He says, The universal extent of the atonement of Christ is nowhere clearer than here. In 1 John 2 2 and, 1, and John 1 29. But this does not guarantee that everyone's sin is automatically forgiven. Christ's work applies only to those who believe in him. Then we move on to 1 John 2 3. Is that by this we know that we've come to know if, 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 that preposition, if, we know, if we keep his commandments. He's addressing the problems of belief and behavior in the Ephesian church. A lot of people say, yeah, I believe in God, but I don't obey what he says. They wouldn't actually be so bold to say that, but they kind of said, well, I'll pick and choose what I want to believe. The issues he spoke of would have deeply challenged the believers in that church. He's stating that no religious experience is valid unless it has moral circumstances attached to it. It's not the person who claims to be a Christian and to know God who is presumptuous, but rather one whose claim is contradicted by his conduct. So if we say, yeah, I believe in God, but I'm not going to live for him. I'm sorry, you just don't got it. Your, your theology is skewed and... You have some deep, deep challenges in your scriptural interpretation. Titus 1.16 says, They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. 
And so again, we see this connection between what I believe and how I live. And it's just always stressing. Because belief should dictate behavior, not behavior of what I believe. That should be the challenge for us today. How do you, as a believer, truly know? Am I really a believer? It's a question John's asking here. How can you be assured you are really a Christian? And the section begins in 1 John 2, 3, and he asks three questions to uh, know whether you're a Christian or not. We're going to put them up in the overhead here. One, and this is the next three from verse 3 to 6, are you keeping his, the commandments? Two, are you growing in your love for God? And three, are you walking the way Jesus walked? Those are three questions that he's going to bring out in this passage. They're heavy-duty questions to process. One, the evidence of relationship is the desire to follow Christ and obey His commands. If I profess I am a Christian, there should be a natural, innate desire within my heart. I want to do what God wants in my life every single moment of every day. If that desire is in present... I need to ask where my relationship's gone sideways. Because the passion of my heart should say, Lord, I want to obey you because I want to please you because you're my heavenly dad. You sent your only son Jesus to die for you. I want to live my life to please you. That's what God wants of those who profess them to call themselves children of God. He says, the desire is to, he said, are you keeping to keep means to fulfill, to pay attention to, to be sensitive to. It's the same word that John uses in Revelation 1.3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. And so the challenge for us as believers is this. If I profess to know God, there should be a desire for me to listen, to understand, to discern what is the will of God every day. So people say, well, what are the commandments? We're not just talking about the Ten Commandments. But we're talking about the you know, one who obeys, who, who keeps the commandments, means every single command given within the Scripture. The commandments are talking about the commandments of the Word of God, the statements that which Scripture speak to us. 1 John 3.23, we read this. And this is the commandment, his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and, here's another one, love one another. Why? Love one another just as Christ loved us, as he has commanded us. And so the command of Christ, that's one of the commands, there's many commands. And so the desire is me, in my heart is to want to keep the commands, pay attention to, listen to, order my life by what scripture teaches me on a daily basis. That's the mark of a person who says, I'm a believer. I live by the Word of God as He enables me every single day. So when you are in relationship with God, there should be a spirit-led desire to obey what God tells you. Is that desire there? First Samuel 15, 22 says this, And Samuel said, 
Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Then 1 John 2, 4 goes on to say this, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. A man's words must be tested by his works. So to say, yeah, I'm a believer in Christ, but I don't go to church. I believe in Christ, but I've never been baptized. I believe I'm a Christian, and I don't really go by the word. I kind of live my life on my own terms. You're not a Christian. Unfortunately, we have a lot of people who claim to call themselves Christian because they prayed a prayer, but never had the heart and desire to follow after Christ. They wanted their one-way ticket to heaven, but there was no desire to live the Christian. Listen, if the deal is real, there will be an innate desire within your life to want to follow after the things of God. Say, Pastor, this is kind of scary teaching. No, it's biblical teaching. Now, what's the challenge? Well, John is addressing a church that's got things mixed up. He's addressing a church that says, uh, we can live life on our own terms. I can live life the way I want. And as I've shared with you over and over again, the hardest thing of the Christian life every day is to submit my life to the leadership of Jesus Christ every single day. It's not what do I want. What does Adrian want? It's what does God want for my life today? And am I willing to lay it on the line every single day for him? That's the Christian life. You say, man, that's a battle. Yeah, you're right. It is a battle. It's realizing the fact that if Jesus Christ lives in my heart, I want him to be Lord of my life, and I want to do that which pleases him. You cannot have a relationship with God without going through Romans 12, 1 and 2. Take a look at this passage. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Paul's addressing the body of Christ at Rome. He says, I appeal you to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, not dead, a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't, do not be conformed to this world. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. But be transformed, be renewed in your mind that you may be testing, that you may, by testing, discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. You cannot grow in your relationship with Christ unless you've gone to Romans 12, 1 and 2. Let's go to 1 John 2, 5. It says, whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Notice the word keep has been stressed three times in this passage. One, are you obeying the word? Two, are you paying attention to it? Three, are you actually listening to it? Listen to this statement. If obedience to the word of God is not the desire of my heart, then I better ask myself the question, have I ever come to know Jesus Christ because one of the normal manifestations of a relationship is a desire to want to obey Jesus? They just go together. See, our fellowship with Christ is nourished by our time in the Word of God. My fellowship with Christ, if it's not spent in the Word of God, will languish. 
will fail. See, true love, John Stott says, is expressed not in sentimental language or mystical experience, but in moral obedience. God says, if you love me, obey me. Psalm 1, 1 and 2 says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. 1 John 2, 6 says this, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way as he walked. It's not enough to say, I love God's word. I now need to say, I want to walk the way Jesus walked. I have responsibility as a believer to be the person who's walking around just like Jesus did. In order for that to happen, I have to be a person who's expressing it with an obedient heart. So are you experiencing the abiding life in Christ this morning? It will then manifest itself in your desire to say, I want to be like Christ in every area of my life. And again, it comes down to who's sitting on the throne of your life? Are you in charge? Or let's put it in the vernacular today. Who's driving the car? Is Jesus at the wheel? Or is it you? What was that country singer? Jesus take the wheel? Maybe you ought to be praying that this morning. And the whole idea is that God in charge of your life is the greatest thing ever. Hey, have you ever been in a car where somebody else is driving and they're doing some crazy stuff and you're like, you're praying, like, slow down, do something different, please. I don't want to be here. But if it's Jesus at the wheel, you're not really worried, are you? Maybe that's why you're freaking out, because Jesus is not at the wheel. It's you who are the one who's really driving. Let me conclude by saying this. It's a quote by Howard Hendricks. We'll throw it up on the screen. This message doesn't seem too rigid, too confining. If so, may I suggest that you might be selling for a decaffeinated form of Christianity for you decaffers. One that promised you not to keep you awake at night. You see, God gives us his word not to make us comfortable, but to conform us to the character of Christ. It goes way beyond our pious feelings and good intentions. It penetrates to the level of our schedules and checkbooks and friendships and jobs and families. If our faith makes no practical difference there, then what difference does it make? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thanks, Lord, for uh, helping me see this one through with my voice. And uh, thank you for this message. Help each one of us, Lord, to live this life in obedience to the leadership of Jesus Christ. I ask it in Christ's name. Amen.